What is the one everyday situation that you dread stuck being, in, uh, stuck, uh, being with young children in? What is the one everyday situation you dread being stuck in with young children? The summer of 1992 was not the easiest for my parents. It started well. We had booked a, a wonderful family holiday in the Yorkshire Dales. It's a beautiful part of northeast England. School was finished, and I'd been bored out of my mind at home, counting down the days to this great holiday. And finally, the time came. We packed up, we got into the car, and we headed out on the road to Yorkshire. But to get to Yorkshire from where I live on the south coast of England, it's a whole 300 kilometers away. And 300 kilometers is a long way for a British family. The first hour on the road, it went quite well. We played some games. We played I Spy. It was all right. But then, as the kilometers continued to tick on, those words that every parent dreads to hear were voiced. Are we nearly there yet? When we get to that tree, will we be there? And my parents, they were very patient with us. But soon, my sister Lucy and I, we forgot about how boring we had been. Bored we had been at home. We forgot how much we had to look forward to on our holiday in Yorkshire. Now, all we could do was focus on how boring this car journey had become. And so we started to complain. I'm bored. I'm, I'm hungry. She's moved on to my side. I want to stop. And things got so bad that my parents did have to stop several times, unplanned, to the point that we even had to get dinner on the road, and then a few miles further down the road, my sister froze up all over the back seat of the car. <laughs> so we had a slow, difficult, and very smelly journey all the way to Yorkshire. It would have been just so much better if my sister and I had remembered what we had to look forward to on holiday rather than focusing on the hardships of the journey at present. Well, in Numbers this morning in this passage, Israel come to a new phase in their crucial journey as God's people. God is continuing to fulfill his promise to them that he made all the way back in Exodus. Here we have in Exodus 6, 7 to 9. He promised them, I will take you to be my people. I will be your Lord God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Oh, God has brought them out of slavery from Egypt. He has brought them to Mount Sinai through Moses and given them his good law. He has made his covenant with them. And they had sworn that they would be God's people under his blessing, trusting and obeying him. And that's, that's what we have recorded from us all, all the way from Exodus 19, all the way through to Numbers 9. Eleven months in total, camping round Mount Sinai, receiving God's good law and swearing, yes, we will be faithful. And now finally, in Numbers 10, verse 11, where we are this morning, Israel, they break camp for the first time. And they start their journey to the land that God had promised them where they would receive his blessing. They get off to a good start. You remember from a couple of weeks ago when Andrew was taking us through Numbers chapter 2, we saw how God had been very specific about Israel were to camp, how they were to arrange themselves when they camped with the, the tent of meeting, the, the sign of God's presence with them in the middle of the camp, and the specific tribes were to camp in certain locations around it. 
And that was also to be the way when they marched as well, when they, when they were on the move to the promised land. And we see here in Numbers 10, 13, that Israel do set out from Mount Sinai exactly as they were commanded to. Have a look in Numbers 10, 13. We read, they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The rest of this chapter, we see each tribe, beginning with Judah, on the march in right formation, tribe by tribe. It is a great start. God is with his people, and they're doing what they should be doing with Moses as their leader. You see these final words in chapter 10, verse 35. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. It sounds so confident, so certain. Israel's under God's protection all the way now to the promised land. But now we turn to Numbers 11 and 12. And we see there that Israel, they didn't need so much protection from their enemies outside as much as they needed protection from their own stubborn, sinful hearts. Their greatest problem is going to come from within. We have this great start, but then the problems begin. Come with me to chapter 11, verse 1, and we see the first grumbling over their hardships. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. God had saved them. He had blessed them. He had provided for their every need. More than 600,000 of them traveling securely. And yet what do they do? They choose to focus on their immediate hardships rather than what the Lord had promised. It's, It's like me and my sister whining in the car on the way to Yorkshire despite the great holiday that we've been looking forward to, despite the boringness of home that we have been relieved of. No, Israel still didn't trust God, and they were quick to turn away from him. They grumble about the conditions he was providing on their journey, and God is understandably displeased with his faithless people. We're told he sends a fire that scorches and consumes the outlying parts of the camp. We're not actually told what's burnt here. may not have been the people, but it's enough to put the fear of God into them for a time. Moses prays for them, and then God in his mercy removes the fire from their midst. And this is the depressing pattern that we're going to now see in Israel's journey to the promised land, that they complain. They refuse to trust God and obey his word, and so God disciplines them for spurning him as their God. Moses begs God to show them mercy, and so he does on the basis of Moses' petitions for the people. And so, each time, Moses slowly gets worn down as their leader. We see that with this next series of grumblings. We see that Moses is ready to throw in the towel with this stubborn, sinful people. Grumble 2 is belly aches. Come with me to 11 verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. Talk about losing your grip on reality because you're not getting what you want when you want it. The the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Egypt for Israel was slavery, hard taskmasters. 
Hard labor every day under a pharaoh who wanted nothing for them as a nation but for them to shrink and die. And yet now here they would rather bite the hand that had brought them out of that slavery, out of that misery. They long to be back there again. And so the anger of the Lord blazes against his fickle people. And poor Moses, he is about ready to throw in the towel. Have a look in 11 verses 14 to 15. Moses cries out to the Lord, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. See, at this point, Moses would rather die than continue leading the stubborn people who who were being blessed so greatly but were so fickle, cared so much about their own bellies rather than honoring the God that had saved them to himself. Well, God does answer in his grace both Moses and his fickle people. And first he tells Moses, gather 70 of the elders of Israel and bring them to me. Bring them to the tent of meeting. And there God promised to take some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it onto these other 70 people. And so that's exactly what Moses does in verse 24. He gets these 70 men together. He brings them to this private meeting with the Lord. And just as God promised... The spirit that was on Moses is shared with them that they might have some derived authority from him, that they might support him in the task of leading Israel. It actually reaffirms Moses' position as their leader because it is Moses' spirit that is put onto these people, not the other way around. But now he has support. These other men have this derived authority from him. And the camp, they find out about it soon enough. Because, verse 26, two of the men who were supposed to be at that meeting, Eldad and Medad, they didn't make it in time. And so when the Spirit descends on them, they start prophesying in the middle of the camp for everyone to see. And and it causes quite a ruckus. Some are afraid for Moses, are these new rivals to him. They run to Moses, they tell Moses what's happened. There are others prophesying, stop them. See what Moses says in verse 27? He's relieved. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? It was Moses' desire for all of God's people to share in the spirit, to know the Lord in this way, to know his word on their hearts, that they might not grumble against him. But Moses knew he was still in charge, that he would be God's mouthpiece to all the people of Israel as he had been. And we see that in verse 18. As the Lord answers his grumbling people through Moses. He calls Moses and he says, read with me at the end of verse 18. Therefore the Lord will give you meat. And you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days. But a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Now, I got a taste of this kind of discipline when I was a young child. My family and I, we were at a friend's for lunch, and towards the end of the meal, with just one small potato remaining on my plate, I had a sudden craving for salad cream. I don't know if we have salad cream here. It's like mayonnaise, but it's a little bit sweet. I'll tell you why I can't look at that picture in a minute. But there it was on the table with my one potato left on the plate, and I decided in front of my mum and all of her friends at the dining table to take this bottle of salad cream and empty the entire contents onto my plate. So I had a a little potato and a whole pool of salad cream around it. My mum was not impressed. And so she said, Tim, 
you are not getting down from this table until you have eaten all of that salad cream. Every last drop. And friends, I tell you, after that experience, I've never wanted to taste, let alone look at salad cream again. I, I, I honestly feel quite sick even looking at that picture. Well, God makes clear that by grumbling over the food that he was providing faithfully for his people, Israel had once again failed to trust him as their God, who had brought them out of slavery, who had provided for their every need, spurned him wanting to go back into the same misery that he had rescued them from, desiring the food of their slavery. So they would eat the food of their slavery that they had craved over and against him, so much that they would loathe it. He sends this huge flock of quail birds up from probably Africa across the Mediterranean, and it lands all around. These birds land all around the camp for more than what we can guess to be 20 kilometers on each side, a day's journey from each side of the camp, this huge flock of quail birds. And Israel just gorged themselves on that meat. There is no sign of sorrow There is no sign of repentance. There's no sign of recognizing that the very meat that they are eating is a sign of their utter faithlessness to the Lord and his promise. And so his anger is kindled once again, and he disciplines his wayward children. We read the sombering verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Perhaps having received the severe discipline, Israel will trust and fear the Lord from this point on rather than following their wayward cravings that would lead them away from him. But no, a fresh location and we have fresh problems. This time it's a rivalry in the leadership of Israel in its highest ranks. Before, Moses had to cope with an angry nation, but now he has to deal with his own angry siblings. Come with me to 12, verse 1. We read there, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Now, these were two very prominent people in Israel. Miriam, who we know from Exodus 16, was the head of a house of prophetesses. So God had actually spoken in some way through her and through those under her charge before. And Aaron who was Moses' brother, he was the high priest of Israel. He was at the top of the sacrificial system. These are two prominent leaders known to the people. And suddenly both of them turn on their brother, God's chosen leader for his people in Moses. Uh, They start by making a fuss over who Moses has taken to be his wife, this Cushite woman, but it's just a smokescreen. Their real beef with Moses is in verse 2. Look in 12 verse 2. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? We're not told why they suddenly usurp Moses here. Maybe they they want more recognition from the people. Maybe they weren't amongst the 70 who have been set aside just in the last chapter to assist Moses in his duties. And they think they've gone from being two and three in Israel to numbers 72 and 73 in the pecking order. But but Moses, he doesn't take them to task, even though he knows he is God's true leader over them. See what we're told in verse 3? Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses wasn't good with these kinds of confrontations. 
And he preferred to escape conflicts rather than face them head on. But the Lord, oh, he has other ideas. He suddenly calls all three of them, Miriam, Moses, and Aaron to himself. And just as Miriam and Aaron had claimed to speak for the people from the Lord, well, now the Lord is going to speak to them. Verse 6, he says, hear my words. Verses 6 to 8, God sets the record straight. He, He explains that, Like Miriam and Aaron, when he speaks through a prophet, he speaks uh, through visions and dreams in in unclear ways, symbolic ways that need to be interpreted. But with Moses, who he says, Moses is faithful in all my house, he really stands out. With Moses, I speak as one face to face. I speak clearly. He speaks in an audible voice. It's God reaffirming Moses as their true leader before, before Miriam and Aaron who are encouraging the people to turn away from him and encouraging them to listen to their words instead. Not to listen to Moses, God's word of authority amongst the people. Well, God won't let that stand. And so he departs. Miriam is declared unclean before him. Maybe she was the one who started this protest in the first place. And so she is the one who bears uh, the greatest penalty. Her skin becomes leprous as snow as the Lord departs from the tent of meeting. And Aaron, he witnesses it. He turns to Moses, calls him Lord and begs for mercy. He's learned his lesson. Moses is their leader before God. And so Moses, in great humility, cries out to the Lord for healing. And the Lord decides, well, yes, Miriam will be healed, but not for seven days. And so she is removed from the camp, and Israel must wait for her to recover. It's another painful delay on their journey to the promised land. So here we have the first three days. On the road, from Mount Sinai, to what God had promised them. The first three stops, and despite setting out the right way, Israel blunder time and again. God, we don't like our hardships. God, we don't like our food. God, we don't like our leader. God, basically, we don't like the way that you are doing things. We don't like you as our God. We'd rather do things our own way. I wonder, what can we take away from this painful departure on Israel's part? Well, firstly, we see here a broken record. A broken record. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of achievement, I don't mean that as in that we've got some record-breaking stuff here. No, I mean a broken record like an annoying CD or an LP, if you're old enough to remember those. And it's got a scratch and it keeps on repeating itself again and again and again the first same five seconds and it really gets on your nerves because it's irreversibly damaged. No matter what you do with it, it just plays the same thing over and over and over again until you want to smash it. And that's what we see here in Israel. They are, in a very real sense, a broken record. Because this pattern of grumbling against the Lord's provision and Moses having to intercede for the people time and again that they might not be consumed by God's righteous holiness, this pattern that we have in Numbers 11 to 12, it's just a repeat. We don't have time now, but if we were to read Exodus 15 and 16, we would see that it's a mirror to Numbers 11 and 12. You see, after three days of leaving Egypt before, Israel grumbled just like here. They were hungry and they were convinced the Lord would not feed them. And they started to long to go back to Egypt again, just like here. 
And as a result, Moses had to share the burden of leadership with others. Just like here. Israel haven't changed. Despite having been brought to Mount Sinai, despite having sworn that we will be faithful to God, despite having received his good law by which if they obeyed, they would know his blessing. But no sooner than a day after leaving the mountain, they are breaking the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength. And yet Israel, they don't do it. They refuse to trust him, and so they refuse to obey him. They desired the cravings of their bellies rather than the God who had saved them. And friends, I can tell you here, standing here this morning, I'm no different. I know that when I'm left to my own devices, I've refused to trust and fear God as I should, even though he gave me life. I've grumbled against my creator. I've sought life away from him, even though he's the God who gave me life. And that is something that his word tells us is true of all of us. We do not relate to God rightly when left to our own devices. His law, all it does is reveal the sinful nature of our hearts. It can't change them. It can't heal them. It can't turn them to God that we would desire him as we should. This account of Israel, this repeat of grumbling again, it forces us to look outside ourselves for hope and to look to another, to look to the one who was faithful in every hardship, the one that was spoken of in Hebrews 3 that we had read for us earlier. Here it is, coming up. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who has appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Here we have a better mediator, a better mediator. Moses was faithful to his ministry, and we saw that today, that he refused to quit. He kept on making God's law known to stubborn Israel. But in Jesus, God has done what the law through Moses could never do. You see how his describes us as a church in Christ here, holy brothers, those who have been made holy, acceptable before God in every way, despite our sin, those who share in a heavenly calling, who have the promise of life with God now and forevermore, despite our sin, not by giving us a law to obey, but by obeying God's law in every way that we have failed. Jesus faced his time in the wilderness, just like Israel did, only his experience was that much harsher. They're complaining over what kind of food they want to eat. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days with no food. But when he was tempted by Satan himself to forsake God, what did he say? Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the Lord. Jesus was faithful. He never grumbled. He never threw off God's rule. And it was that perfect obedience that took him to the cross for our sakes, where he paid the price for every time I've grumbled and every time you've grumbled against the God who has saved us to himself. And so Moses' desire that we saw in Numbers that God's people might share in his spirit every single one of them, that has been met in Jesus because we've been made holy, acceptable to God by faith in his blood. And that spirit is now working if we are trusting in Christ today in our hearts, turning our desires to God and away from the sin that would otherwise lead to our destruction.
that we might desire him who has saved us at such a cost. So friends, our only hope for life with God, rather than his judgment for sin, what do we see in Israel today? It's to look outside ourselves, first of all, and look to another. Depend on Jesus. Entrust yourself to him. Finally, here we have a believer's warning as well. A believer's warning. Israel's example does stand as a warning for us as God's church today. As those who have now received God's Spirit empowering us to live for Jesus, to do that which we could never do like Israel, left to our own devices. We mustn't be like them in the wilderness. Their story is given to us as an example that we would learn from it. We mustn't be like me as a kid, grumbling in the car on the way to a great holiday, grumbling over the hardships of what I can see in front of my face here and now because I've forgotten what I've been saved from and I've forgotten what I'm being saved for. For Israel, it was being saved from physical slavery in Egypt, receiving a good land, and yet our salvation in Christ is infinitely greater. Saved from the hopelessness of sin that can never satisfy, leading to nothing but God's righteous condemnation and receiving in its place a heavenly calling, new life of our Creator now and forevermore where the hardships and the temptations that we face in the moment will be a thing of the past, all by the blood of Christ shed for us. We're not there yet. We don't know the fullness of his kingdom yet. We've not been relieved of every hardship and every temptation yet. For now, we will face them. I wonder, this morning, are we here? Are we right now in the midst of a battle and we're tempted to forsake God out of a craving craving for other things, the things that this world has to offer? I really want a rich, prosperous Life now, but that means not putting God first with my possessions. I really want a partner in my life right now, but that means not putting Jesus first because I've got to go with someone who doesn't share my love for him. I want something now, now, but I know it means denying Christ as my Lord. Friends, if we're giving in to such wayward desires, repent. Come back to him who alone can grant us lasting peace. Don't make Israel's mistake of grumbling against God, of failing to trust and obey him, come rain or shine, and so failing to inherit what he had promised. The lesson is for us as believers, keep your confidence firm in Jesus to the end. He is faithful. He will bring us home as we entrust ourselves to him. Let's make the words of our next song our prayer to God. Please now open our eyes. Replace this heart of stone. Make us your new creation. And let nothing keep us from the love of God. Let's stand. Let's sing together.